This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So for all those who are still here, thanks for being here. I'm going to try to go through a talk on key points about open bypass surgery and leave some time for a great case presentation from, from our VA and hopefully those who are here will be engaged in some conversation around these complex problems. So my disclosures for this uh, talk. So instead of putting this last, I wanted to put it first because this is actually the most important thing. It's uh, no matter what technique you use, no matter what you're an expert at, you need for these problems, you need a whole team behind you. This is our team, uh, podiatrists, nurses, vascular surgeons, basically what it takes to try to get these patients uh, healed and keep them healed and, and also uh, uh, to manage all of our provider up and downs. Uh, takes a team approach to keep us all balanced. So I'm grateful to have such a great team here at UCSF. When we try to think about selecting the optimal revascularization strategy, you've heard a lot about this in different pieces. I'm going to just try to put it together very quickly um, because we try to do this quickly. We see patients together, and we, des- we ter- de- determine pretty quickly if we think that there's a problem with the vascular supply. And then you go through a set of algorithms. First of all, what kind of patient is this? What kind of risk do they, present, do they present for surgery? What's their long-term survival? How functional are they? Is this a, a limb salvage candidate? And then you've already heard about assessing the limb severity, and we'd like to use the Wi-Fi system. But basically, we're asking how threatened is this limb on the spectrum of limb threat? And then we look as vascular, as we, as we determine the vascular stuff, basically we need to know the anatomic pattern of disease. For endovascular interventions, the likelihood of technical success, the amount of hemodynamic gain we think we're going to get, and how durable is it going to be for the problem we have to fix. And for bypass, really more about the quality of the vein and the target that we might have. So in terms of trying to improve surgical outcomes in these patients, and I think this is important because no matter what we do, the outcomes clearly need to get better across the board. One important part of it is picking the right thing for the right patient at the right time. So picking the patient selection, and risk stratification. When we're talking about bypass surgery, we need to focus on a couple of things. How to keep early technical failure to an absolute minimum. How to reduce perioperative wound complications that can be severe for patients. And then how, once you get past that, how to maintain long-term function of these grafts, because patients with cardiovascular disease are living longer, and they're outliving these reconstructions. How do we do that? By minimizing the use of non-autogenous conduits, by being uh, thoughtful and careful in how we handle and select the conduit, by recognizing that the first attempt is actually possibly the most important, and then surveillance and medical therapy. You've already heard about Wi-Fi, so we're not going to go into it in much detail. I just wanted to point out a couple of quick things. One is that the staging is based on the estimated risk of amputation. But the other question that was asked of people, this is not the staging, is who's likely to benefit So from revascularization. Not surprisingly, most people put all of that out here in the patients with the most severe ischemia. So there's not a perfect overlap between the patients who are going to benefit the most and those who have the highest risk of amputation. You can see there's lots of people out here who are at risk for amputation. But the point about these patients over here, the ones with advanced limb threat and severe ischemia will have the least tolerance for failed revascularization and they're going to have the greatest relative impact of durability of that procedure. Time in these patients, time is tissue. Don't fiddle and diddle. The best outcomes are achieved if you do the optimal procedure well in a timely fashion. 
These people don't tolerate failure very well. And this is just a small study that we've done. It's already been shown once, but basically all revascularization is not equivalent. So these, this is a, not a randomized trial. These are patients in stage four, the most severe patients that we've looked at retrospect, uh, prospectively actually over time who got revascularized. And it just points out these are not equal patients. Some patients got endovascular because they don't have a candidate for bypass. Some patients got bypass because they're better candidates than endovascular. But in any case, for these patients with the most advanced limb threat, it looked like bypass worked better than endovascular. And I can tell you now with longer follow-up on the same patients, these curves are widely split. Now, to be fair, again, some of these patients who got endovascular were possibly an attempt at a, you know, a last-ditched attempt to try to salvage a foot with a, an intervention that was not likely to work. But I just want to point out that in these patients who have the most severe limb threat, an effective revascularization makes the biggest difference. Okay, so for bypass surgery, in terms of the outcomes we look at, when it comes to patency, it is about technical factors. And of those, far and away the most important is not the arteries, but the vein, the quality and caliber of the vein that's available to you. Uh, we also pay attention to things like graph length, trying to minimize graph length, of course, having an adequate target and having some runoff is critical. There are other factors that may determine patency, including patient-specific factors. In general, comorbidities, like including di diabetes per se, do not have much of an impact on patency of the graft. They do impact other factors, such as survival and, and, and risks of amputations. When you look at survival, it's not really about technical factors. It's about clinical factors. And when you look at limb salvage, that's where limb staging and wound factors actually dominate, and it all sort of comes together. Clinical factors are also, of course, relevant. Now, my old institution in Boston um, did a lot of bypass surgery, and so just in observations about bypass surgery patency, just so we understand what some of the causes are of failure. This is a typical graft patency curve. They always look like this. They always have three phases. The first phase of failure is what we would call technical. It's related to factors that the patient comes with, the quality of the conduit, the quality of the target, and perhaps some truly technical mistakes. And that should be less than 6 or 7%. But this next part of the curve that we see where there's the biggest drop-off in rate uh, relates to new intrinsic lesions forming within the graft, or what we call graft in neointimal hyperplasia. This is a scarring response in the conduit, and there may be some relationship between the first part and the second part. That is, how we handle that conduit, how we beat it up or not beat it up, likely plays a role in some of the scarring response that happens and the formation of some of these lesions that many of which can be treated to maintain secondary patency. And then you can see once you get beyond about two years, the curve starts to flatten out where the attrition is more like about 5% a year. And this is really the development of atherosclerosis in the inflow and outflow arteries and also in the graft. So these are the three classic phases, but they're not, they're not completely disconnected. They are related to each other in causation to some degree. So in terms of the key technical, technical elements, uh, again, I want to stress the assessment of the conduit. So preoperative evaluation should always include vein mapping to determine what your sources of vein are, not necessarily to exclude a patient, but to also know where to go if the conduit is not exactly what you expect, where's the next most likely place to get good vein. Obviously, you need to select your inflow and outflow sites from high-quality angiography. You need to think about vascular control, especially dealing with heavily calcified targets. 
incisions and tunneling are critical. We'll talk a little bit about that. Management of coagulation and then completion assessment and postoperative care. All of these factors play a big role. This one, though, still is the dominant one. Preoperative planning, high-quality imaging is required to plan a bypass in any patient, particularly patients with distal disease, such as diabetics with tibial and pedal disease. It's really critical to have good views of the ankle and foot, as Joe just showed, putting your catheter down as far as you can get it, sometimes actually pulling it back to where the collaterals are, getting multiple injections with multiple views. I would say that axial imaging studies are usually not adequate for distal bypass for limb salvage, particularly uh, to the below-knee tibial and pedal vessels. Vein mapping, I think, is very important. Uh, use, of course, you want to look for the ipsilateral, but also the contralateral leg. Uh, if you don't have good vein in either of those, I have them routinely do the arms, unless it's a dialysis patient. You're looking at the size of the vein. You're looking at aspects of quality, such as thickness and compressibility. And you're also looking for anatomic variance in the course of the vein. And, of course, you want to look at the leg before you plan this operation. Where should I make my incision so that I can avoid areas of venous stasis or or inflammation to minimize graft healing, wound healing problems? How should I make my tunnels to minimize morbidity? Should I put it in a subcutaneous position or should I put it in a deep position? You've got to be thinking carefully about that and make sure they're optimized medically before you undertake this because you want them to get through their course with as minimal bumps in the road as possible. Vein quality, the single best vein for bypass is a, is a single-segment greatest saphenous vein, but it may not be available in between 20 and 40 or 50% of patients, depending on the series. So vein mapping is important beforehand. I always repeat the ultrasound in the operating room before I start the case because not only does it confirm for me that the vein is still okay, but it shows me exactly where it is. It helps me to plan my incisions and my case strategy. And if it doesn't look perfect, I look at the other leg before I prep the leg so I know where I'm going next. I recommend this if you can do it. Key factors, again, in terms of vein quality, I avoid anything that with a tourniquet on is less than 3 millimeters. Sometimes my ultrasound lab is not accurate. They may say it's 2.5, and they may be perfectly usable vein especially once I inspect it and dilate it in the operating room. Certainly want to avoid anything that looks sclerotic or looks like it has that double ring thickness on it that is a sign of previous phlebitis or phlebosclerosis. I would tell you that it's better to excise a questionable piece of vein and put two pieces together than to retain a poor quality segment in that conduit. Don't compromise on the vein or you'll be unhappy later. This has been borne out in many, many ways, but the PREVENT-3 trial had an opportunity to look at it in, in many different parameters. Again, here from the PREVENT-3 trial of 1,400 patients, all of these bypasses were for critical limb ischemia. You can see that a single-segment greater saphenous vein is far and away the best conduit. Other autogenous veins are reasonably good, and they would be better than prosthetic, but a single-segment saphenous vein is the best, particularly if it's at least 3.5 millimeters in diameter. The patency rate starts to fall off when you get to smaller... Uh, veins that are less than three millimeters. If, in fact, you look at just the optimal co uh, conduit, which is a three and a half millimeter saphenous vein, the results you should be able to expect are very low early failure rates and excellent patency rates of 70 to 80 percent. And the thing that's always uh, maybe surprising to some people, if you have a good vein, it doesn't really matter if you go to a popliteal or a tibial level. It doesn't matter how far down the leg you need to go. For the most part, if it's a good vein, it's going to do very well. And that's more of a determinant, the quality of the vein, than actually where you plug in, whether it's a pop or a tib or even a pedal. 
So the level of the distal anastomosis is not as important as the quality of the vein in most of these patients. What about how we minimize early graft injury? Because I suggested to you that that's the key trigger for maybe downstream events. So there is some understanding about this. I think we know from many years from Legerfo and others and Dr. Andros the importance of being cautious about how we handle the vein, avoid stretch, torsion, and distension. Think about warm ischemia and reperfusion. This is basically a transplant. So we try not to take it out until we've got our proximal and distal sites prepared so there's minimal warm ischemia time. It's interesting what people use for their vein harvest solutions. We'll talk about that very quickly. But, you know, low pH and, 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 low and uh, inadequate osmolarity solutions can add to endothelial toxicity. These veins will experience oxidative stress. And then you're going to put them in an arterial environment where they get suddenly stressed with this bolus of pressure and shear stress that they were not designed for. So there's a hemodynamic injury that happens. They have to adapt to that. There's going to be an inflammatory response and then a healing response and this takes place over weeks to months. You don't know if that graft is going to stabilize until a couple of months have passed. We like to minimize harvest trauma and ischemia time. Be gentle with the manipulation during exposure. As I mentioned, don't divide your conduit until you know exactly what you're doing. And actually, don't remove it if you can until you're really ready to put it in. Uh, endoscopic harvest, Vince talked about a little bit. The data suggests that actually the results are not as good uh, and may be injurious, so we don't really find an opportunity to employ it very much. And use a buffered isotonic solution. If you're a surgeon who's still here to dis does distal bypass, if there's one thing you take out of this, if you're using heparin saline or using regular saline solution, just go to a buffered solution. I'll show you the data. It's actually quite convincing. Something like plasmalite uh, maintains a neutral pH, uh, most people would add, of, of course, but in addition to heparin, a vasodilator like paparvin or other vasodilators are all probably equivalent. Uh, some of the best data on the harvest solution comes from the coronary literature. Uh, this is the PREVENT-4 trial, and I'll just point out that in this study, no, no specific formulation was prescribed by the investigators. So some patients got saline, some patients got uh, uh, buffered saline, regular saline, or even heparinized blood. And heparinized blood and, and non-buffered saline did much more poorly than buffered saline in, the, in this study. You can see right here in terms of the preservation solution, whether it was patient level or graft level incidence of graft failure, the buffered saline group had the lowest incidence of graft failure. This has been borne out in other studies as well. What do you do if the patient doesn't have a good saphenous vein in that leg? First of all, don't be surprised because you would have planned for this before you got there, or you would have looked with your ultrasound before you made the incision. So you should know what plan B is going to be before you start. In general, I favor using the contralateral saphenous vein, particularly the thigh vein, uh, so, uh, in, unless there's advanced disease in that leg. Of the alternative veins in the arm, the cephalic is the easiest to harvest, so that would be choice number two. Uh, splice veins can work very well. Their primary assisted patency and secondary patency are often much better than prosthetics, but they require surveillance and sometimes reintervention. And I would say to you that the worst conduit overall is a bad vein. So a bad sclerotic, small caliber vein is never going to work. So in those situations, something else may be better uh, than, a, than a bad vein. This is just a study, from again, from the, the Brigham Group looking at some of these alternative conduits, and you can see that contralateral greater saphenous vein performs better than, than uh, single-segment or spliced arm veins, which are reasonable with 50% patency extending out beyond two years. 
Just some technical tips in terms of when you're doing this, if you have to splice two veins together, uh, I like to try to have a gentle ta a taper to the whole conduit with the larger end and the, and the proximal side and the lower and the smaller end distally, but you can do reverse or non-reverse, whatever you want. It does help when you're splicing two veins together that those two ends are as close to the same size as possible. Just makes it a simpler exercise. Just bevel the two ends and do a careful venovenostomy, uh, and you can get a nice splice vein conduit. There's many ways to do the arm vein uh, reconstruction. People have recommended keeping the loop intact at the antecubital, lysing the basilic, and then reversing the cephalic in one long piece. Uh, the problem with that is that the antecubital vein is often kind of the Achilles heel because it tends to be stuck by phlebotomists all the time. And if you're going to preserve that, you better be sure that that's okay. More often than not, I will end up having to excise that and splicing the two ends together. I'm sitting here, Dr. Andros has done this more than anybody else that I think I know, and he'll probably make a few comments about that. But uh, in my experience, that loop graft is a great concept, but it's not as commonly usable. Doesn't matter what you like, reverse, non-reverse, or in situ, the results suggest they're equivalent. But for me, again, the artery size match to the vein is a technical consideration. I tend to use a lot of non-reverse grafts for that reason. I like the bigger end in the, on the proximal side and the smaller end distally, but you need to know how to use a valvulotome if you're going to do that. If you're not comfortable with that, you're better off just reversing the graft and damaging it. Um, I use a retrograde Mills valvulotome. I prefer direct vision, not the blind technique for valvulotomy. Graft length may be important. I think the diabetic data suggests that distal bypass grafts, distal origin grafts work very well. I'll show you that in a minute. Shorter grafts probably have better patency, so choosing a distal inflow site is fine as long as you have no hemodynamic lesion above. And as far as how you tunnel it, again, this has no apparent influence on patency, but there are some pros and cons. So superficial locations are much easier to get good surveillance on. Also, they're easier to revise if you have to do a short open interposition graft rather than digging something out deep in the leg. Uh, but deeper location is favored if you need shorter length or if you have any concerns about soft tissue quality or skin quality, uh, such as patients with venous disease or sometimes dialysis patients. It may be safer to put the graft deep. The data on graft length is shown here. It is intrinsically linked, of course, to inflow and outflow site. But shorter grafts generally do better. As far as arteries, uh, obviously you select your inflow artery to be hemodynamically uncompromised. Treat common femoral and profunda disease at that time if it's present by endarterectomy or patch. Try to avoid making the incision right where the calcium is. It just makes the, the operation harder for no good reason. Um, try to avoid reoperative sites. Distal origin grafts, meaning distal to the groin, are very useful, particularly in diabetics who may have sparing of the proximal arteries. Pick an outflow site that gives you direct runoff to the foot. We already talked about the angiosome concept. It's not clear to me if it's relevant for all patients, but if it is relevant for anyone, it's probably for those with larger wounds in the mid and hind foot rather than minor forefoot lesions. Distal origin grass, as I mentioned, may give you an opportunity to use a shorter conduit. You can take the vein from the thigh where the skin is usually better and translocate it down the leg and start at the mid or distal SFA or popliteal. The long-term results are excellent, but when you surveil these patients, don't just surveil the graft. Make sure you keep an eye on that proximal artery because progression of disease in the SFA can take the graft down. Uh, this is an example of, of a paper we wrote a number of years ago looking at these distal origin grafts. In particular, in diabetics, they work extremely well. 
You can use tourniquet control sometimes for both anastomoses, uh, and you can uh, have uh, a really uh, smooth uh, procedure where the conduit is coming from the thigh, you're translocating it down the leg, and you can even use some minor superficial femoral artery angioplasty for focal lesions and still have a good distal origin graft, particularly if you have a limitation in conduit availability. I'll end up by just a few words about the end of the case. I think completion imaging is important. I think it should be standard, particularly in patients with advanced limb ischemia. Again, I mentioned your first shot may be your only and best shot for that patient. Don't leave the operating room without knowing that that graft is technically adequate. I actually use both duplex and completion angiography because they give me two different pieces of information. Duplex is very sensitive for abnormalities in the conduit. Angiography gives me a better picture of the runoff. Uh, don't uh, abandon the case and let someone else close the wounds uh, because I think wound closure is critical. Uh, you need to have meticulous hemostasis. Getting hematomas in these wounds can be the first thing that leads to wound breakdown and exposed graft. So meticulous hemostasis, if you need to leave drains in for a day or two, do so, and do multi-layered interrupted closures, in my case, I think are preferred. And then what do you do afterwards? Well, it's, the show's not over. You got out of the room. The foot is hot. They got a good pulse, but they're going to swell. They're going to have to heal for several weeks. Make sure you keep them under good medical and risk factor control. Elevate the leg. Don't be afraid to put an ACE wrap on it. Just don't choke it on there, but maintain some gentle compression to control edema. Avoid maceration. Ambulate them early and slowly increase as tolerated to surveillance and reintervention. And just two quick slides at the end to show that diabetes is not necessarily a predictor of bad outcome. The largest series, this is from the Deaconess, of over 900 patients basically looking at diabetes versus no diabetes, showed very similar results in terms of graft patency, in terms of limb salvage, and in terms of patient survival. Uh, and a more recent, and this also a meta-analysis of poptodistal bypasses in diabetics shows excellent patency. But a more recent study from Italy again shows that diabetes per se is not a critical factor in determining graft patency versus conduit, whether it's primary or secondary or amputation-free survival. So you can get the same results in diabetic patients with a good bypass as you can in non-diabetic patients. Keys to success are shown on this slide. Again, don't compromise on the conduit. We'll have some new guidelines coming out later this year that will help us select the right procedure for the right patient at the right time. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.